The WTMJ 5-day forecast, a very, very small chance of a thunderstorm popping up this afternoon. Otherwise, partly cloudy, hot, and humid. High temperature around 90. For tonight, slight chance of storms early, becoming less humid, a low 64. Thursday, mostly sunny and beautiful, 76. Friday, mostly sunny, 82. Saturday, partly cloudy, warm and humid, slight chance of storms, 84. Lakeside, 88. Inland, for Sunday, partly cloudy, warm and humid, slight chance of storms, 83. Near the lake, 87. Inland. I'm meteorologist Brian Iznanski with the Storm Team Forecast in WTMJ. Right now in Madison, it's 85. Green Bay, 83. Waukesha, 87. In Milwaukee, 93 degrees. Stay informed no matter where you are. Download the new WTMJ mobile app today. I'm Mike Spaulding, News Radio, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. With all due respect, I reject your theory completely. But you know what? There needs to be some backlash to this. This would be disastrous. There really has to be a better way. And I think the biggest question here is, what the hell is going on? The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 414-799-1620. Move for present. Get in the race. Will he run? And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So, Gru, the doctor says I'm going to live. This is for the last week, and and I I know a lot. I know a lot of people who've been sick. I I had this cold, and then I just like couldn't shake it. And for the last week, it's like it's settled in my nose and my throat and and my chest. And and I, I wasn't sure is it an, is, is are these allergies because I know the mold count is just astronomical. Is this this virus or or whatever? And actually. This morning was really the first morning that I started in the last week feeling decent. I'm, I'm breathing through my nose and my throat's not sore, still got a little congestion. But interestingly enough, I had a follow-up, just, I had a, a regularly scheduled appointment with my doctor this morning. So I figured, okay, well, we, you know, we're going to go in and take blood work and stuff, but I'm going to use this opportunity to say, well, this is how I've been feeling for the last week and I'm feeling better today and stuff. And I said, I, I've had this cough. And he says, well, does it hurt when you cough? And I said, no, it doesn't hurt when I cough. I just got a cough. And he, you know, takes a look at me and says, you're fine. And I said, you know, he listens to the thing, deep breaths, ah, now you're going to live. I, you know, do I need any more follow-up? No, you're fine. You know, it's, it, you, you will be just, you'll be absolutely fine. So I, I've been assured by my doctor that I'm just absolutely fine. We will move on from there. Remember the name Amber Schmunk? Amber Schmunk. Let's put that in the Wayback Machine. Amber Schmunk was the Sockville woman about two years ago. She's the gal that went and purchased like a plastic wading pool. And now Rue is smiling. You now remember Amber Schmunk. And the, the wading pool was too big to go inside her, her vehicle. So what she did was she strapped it onto the top of her car. And then to hold it down, she had her nine-year-old kid climb onto the roof and sit in in the wading pool. Um, you know, what, what ended up happening is then she, she, she then started driving down the street, heading to her sister's house where they were going to use the wading pool. Another driver um, saw that there's this car moving down the street and there's a kid sitting in the wading pool on the roof, followed her for about a block. Um, at that point in time, you know, the patrol cars from Sockville pull up and, um, you know, they, they investigate this. Ultimately, she was convicted of a felony and, and put on probation, which was probably the right response. But we talked about this a couple times. Like, all right, of, of all the different, of the litany of choices that you can make 
given the fact that you've got a waiting pool that's you got it you you've bought the waiting pool <clears throat> you got to transport it and you've got a whole variety of of choices that that you can make including gee it won't fit in my vehicle why don't I wait? We'll come back. I'll get somebody that's got a bigger car or, or a truck or whatever, and we'll pick it up, and we'll move it. Of all the different choices that you can make, and there's probably a 100 different things that you could do, putting it on the roof of your car and having your 9-year-old kid ride on top to hold it down, well, that that's probably the worst idea of the bunch. So that was Amber Schmunk. And one of the reasons I talked about it is I thought it was such an unusual situation. You know, you never see this story again. Who Who would be, who would be dumb enough to put a kid in a car. Well, it brings me to the story of Jennifer Janice Yeager, who is 49 years old. Now, Amber Schmunk was in her 20s. And so maybe maybe you can describe this as just kind of sort of like youthful stupidity. Although I would argue at the age of 29, you should probably realize you don't put a kid in a wading pool on the top of a car. But Jennifer Yeager, 49. Okay, she was pulled over the other day for... Pulling an Amber Schmunk. Here's the story. She was pulled over after a concerned citizen spotted not one, but two kids sitting on the top uh, in an inflatable pool on the top of her SUV as she was driving down the road. Apparently what happened is she's got this pool. So she drives into town. And this is Dixon, Illinois. She drives into town to inflate the pool at a, a friend's house. All right, so you know, I, I, you know, we, it's hot. We want to swim around in the pool, but I got to inflate it. All right, well, so and so, we're going to go over to see Betty or whatever. Betty's got you know a pump or whatever. She'll inflate it. So they go over. That's fine. They inflate the pool. Now this inflatable pool is too big to fit in the car. So what she does is she, just like Amber Schmunk, but in this case involving two kids. She takes both of her children, puts them on top of, in the pool, on top of her Audi, and then starts driving home. And then, of course, the same things happen. She has now been arrested, accused of driving with kids on the top of an SUV in an inflatable pool. I, I look at these stories, and, and admittedly, okay, I, I don't have children myself. Oh, no, i got two stepdaughters and grandchildren through them and all. But who in their right mind thinks it's a good idea to inflate a pool and then have kids sit on the roof of the car to hold it down. And if you thought the um, Amber Schmunk story was kind of a one-off, apparently it is not. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Collectively, the city council is a bunch of idiots. They might be smart individually, but I think this is a stunningly stupid move. Here's the deal. Minnesota, St. Louis Park City, all right, which is one of the cities in Minnesota. It's actually it's the con- it's in that congressional district where the the congresswoman you know Omar comes from. Okay, so this is that rep- rep- that's this is her district. All right, so they have city council meetings, and they decided apparently a couple weeks ago that despite historically starting every city council meeting with a pledge of allegiance, well, that's how it starts, they decided it was time to scrap the pledge of allegiance, allegiance, and they voted unanimously to kill the pledge of allegiance. Why, why did they do that? Well, they did it because they want to serve a more diverse 
community. That's the quotation. We concluded that in order to create a more welcoming environment to a diverse community, we're going to forego saying the Pledge of Allegiance before every meeting, said one of the council members. Not everyone who does business with the city or has a conversation with the council is a citizen. They certainly don't need to come into city council chambers and pledge their allegiance to our country in order to tell us what their input is about a sidewalk in front of their home. So the idea being, if we start off by saying the Pledge of Allegiance and you've got somebody who's a non-citizen and they happen to come in, well, they might be offended or upset or feel excluded by having people who, I don't know, live in America, are voters, presumably. Um, they might be offended by, these would be the the people who, you know, are not Americans. They might have be somehow be offended by watching other people say the Pledge of Allegiance. They unanimously voted to do this. At the city council meeting on Monday, all right, there was about 100 people that kind of bum-rushed the council meeting, and they were all chanting, USA, USA, extremely upset about this decision. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I understand the Pledge of Allegiance is symbolic, but let's be honest. Have we reached a point in America in 2019 where... You don't start city count. You don't start public meetings of government officials by reciting the Pledge of Allegiance because, well, you you want more diversity and you feel that somebody might be left out. Is that a reasonable position to take, or is it, as we often say, political correctness run amok? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This Common Council does away with the Pledge of Allegiance. I think they should be ashamed of themselves. What do you think? 414-799-1620. Back with your calls in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Join WTMJ's Melissa Barkley this Saturday afternoon from 1 to 3 to celebrate 100 years of the West Dallas Farmer's Market. That's right. Southeast Wisconsin's largest open-air farmer's market is turning 100. There'll be giveaways, live music, food trucks, and much more. That's this Saturday, 1 to 3, at the West Dallas Farmer's Market. Do not miss it. Here's the uh, the other dazzling detail about the, this story, about the Common Council that's decided to do away with the, the Pledge of Allegiance. Well, apparently, even the members of the Council acknowledge that, that they weren't receiving complaints about it. They said even, even the non-citizens who would show up. No, no, nobody really complained about it. So this is one of these deals where it's kind of like preemptive. You know, you have these people sitting around twiddling their thumbs, contemplating their navels, and somebody says, well, you know, there might be somebody in this community who feels uncomfortable if they come in and we start off with a Pledge of Allegiance, to which I would say, well, if you're uncomfortable when the Pledge of Allegiance is said, you have more problems than you got more problems than simply the fact that the Common Council is is saying the pledge. Look, I I understand if you're not American, I understand that you shouldn't be compelled to stand up and pledge allegiance to the flag if you don't feel like it. Well, nobody's compelling him to do that, but you can darn sure sit and wait the 15 seconds it takes to say the pledge and then tell the city council that they need to fix the potholes. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage uh, talk and text line. Here's some text. Jeff, I think the common council is really offended by the Pledge of Allegiance. They're just using the non-citizens as an excuse. 
Well, it that could be because, like I say, nobody nobody is coming forward. At least they're not identifying like a group of people or individuals that were coming forward and saying we're offended by this. Because my guess is there's nobody out there that's like this. Jeff, it feels like the days of American patriotism patriotism becoming just racist are right around the corner. Well. Yeah, I mean, that that's, of course, where you are. And what was the big story from last week? Well, it's Nike comes out with the, thir- the flag of the 13 colonies. Colin Kaepernick brands it as racist. And Nike immediately, being the woke company that they are, says that we're going to pull this thing off, despite the fact that the flag has no really significant connection to you know, racism or any of the like. But again, we we live in these politically correct times where you have, in this case, even government officials who are out and about and they're just obsessed with, gee, well, we, we don't want to do anything that might be seen as being non-inclusive. Well, all right, why not? 414-799-1620. Here's a text. Jeff, they're morons. What do other countries do? We all need to get a grip. Um, Jeff, what is going on in this country? Why in the world do, um, you know, we, why in the world should we, you know, not, why in the world should we change the Pledge of Allegiance just because somebody from another country might feel uncomfortable. Jeff, um, this is scary. It seems slowly but surely we are losing our country. It seems citizenship is becoming to mean nothing. They're worried about pleasing and not offending folks who are in from outside the country. It's disconcerting. Tough if they're uncomfortable. Leave the room. I'm so fed up with this baloney. Yeah, um, yeah, That that's... That's my perspective on on this as well. It's this is this country, right? The council starts with a pledge of allegiance to the flag, like schools start. You know, normally we had the controversy. Remember, we had the controversy before about well, you know, one nation under God. That's not this. This is just the question about whether or not at a public meeting in the United States, a meeting of public officials. Are we in a situation where, okay, we because of political correctness, we no longer want to allow people to even recite the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag? 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. Okay, let's start with Ryan in Oconomowoc. Hi, Ryan. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for taking my call. Sure. What do you think? Um, well, you know what? I, I kind of, this, this jives with how I feel sort of about the national anthem. Um, I, I, I think that these things should be said in public, you know, recited. Uh, the, the Pledge of Allegiance, the National Anthem should be sung before games. But, I, like, so I think that's great. But I, I think, like, there should be a, a comfort level with people not doing that, too. So, you know, like, the, the National Anthem, if somebody doesn't want to, if they want to take a knee, if they want to sit down during it, they should feel comfortable doing that. I mean, in, in the ideal world, that's how I see it. Like, well, let's talk. Let's talk about plan. the pledge case. I mean, yep. right? Yep. If somebody, if somebody is sitting in that city council room and everybody stands up to say the pledge of allegiance, and for whatever reason somebody does doesn't want to do it, I'm cool with that too. I mean, I, yep. I don't, I don't think it should be mandatory. But at the same time, this is America, and I don't think. I don't think it's wrong for public officials to start public meetings with the Pledge of Allegiance. I, I just, you know, if you don't want to stand up and say it, God bless you. That's okay. Wait yeah, the 15 exactly. seconds. Yeah. No. You know, and, and I think I think people who don't stand up and say it should, if they have that conviction and it's strong enough in them to not stand up and say it, 
they should be comfortable with the fact that somebody might look at them sideways. Well, I mean, well right. Yeah, you, you, yes. is, you yeah. Know? I mean, right. You're, you under, right, exactly. I mean, thanks to call. No, you're, you're right. I mean, actions have consequences. And if, if for whatever reason you decide you want to kneel during the national anthem, okay, well, then, then you should be prepared to recognize that a lot of people are going to look at you as a loser. All right. Oh, did he just say that? Yeah, I just said it. All right. Now, some people might not, but if you're going to call attention to yourself in that way, you better be prepared for what's going to come because actions, in fact, have consequences. Similarly, I don't think, you know, you should be required to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. All right. I, I don't, but I agree with you. If you're in this room and you have everybody, 95% of the people who stand up and they say the Pledge of Allegiance and a couple people choose not to, yeah, they're probably going to get looked at sideways. Well, okay, that's that's simply what comes from this behavior. Actions have consequences. But again, this idea that in America in 2019, because we want to serve a diverse community and because we're concerned that someone might be offended about something, well, okay, we're just going to take it upon ourselves to cancel the Pledge of Allegiance. That's kooky. It's just flat-out kooky. Now, in the wake of all these protests, uh, the common, the city council says that at their next meeting on Monday, they are going to reconsider this. Well, all right, shouldn't have done it in the first place, but this is an easy one. They've dug themselves a hole, and instead of continuing to dig and make it worse, what you do is you fill in the hole, you declare victory, you say we were wrong, and now we're going to start off by reciting the pledge. That's the easy way to handle it. Will they do it next Monday? We'll see. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So, very glad to have you with us. Hey, uh, if you want to get a head start on some of the things we either are going to talk about or just did talk about, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620 Got a link to the story, including a lot of video involving the Common Council that decided to ban the Pledge of Allegiance and the reaction of the general public. You can see that story um, in the 2 o'clock hour. A woman who was, was told to cover up on an airplane, she now says it was because of racism. If you want to see what she was wearing... Um, I got a link to that story as well, and then a story that I, I just I'm I can't wait to discuss it with you. It's actually it's one of it's it's either crazy or creepy or cool, and I don't know what category it fits in. But we're going to talk about it at 105. If you want a head start and you want to see some more of the story, including a really really cute picture, you follow me at Jeff Wagner 620. Got a link to that story as well. All right. Big win for President Trump today in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. This is out of Richmond, Virginia, involving the emoluments clause to the Constitution. If you had never heard the word emoluments, I would I would understand because this you don't use that word very often. And if you have never heard about the emoluments clause to the Constitution, I would certainly understand because until Donald Trump became president, there had never been any litigation at all since the 1700s, mind you, involving the emoluments clause. So what is the emoluments clause? It's again, this dates back to the 1700s. And what it says is that no federal official. Um, should obtain financial benefits or emoluments. That's what an emolument is. It's a financial benefit from state or foreign governments. The purpose behind this 
when it was enacted again in the 1700s is you didn't want foreign governments that were going to come in and, and pay salaries or, or pay off um, you know, newly elected legislators or the president or whatever. Since the Emoluments Clause was enacted, there has been no litigation at all. It, it's, a, it's a provision that has no enforcement provisions to it. There's no remedy for it. It just simply says, okay, you, 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 this, this is out there. You should not do it. But there's been never been a definition of what is an emolument or who can sue. And it's never been an issue before. Well, you know, Donald Trump being Donald Trump, you have people who have decided to do whatever they possibly can to try to bring him down and to come up with any sort of theory, no matter how novel or how attenuated it could possibly be. So the state of Maryland, um, the Democrat attorney general and the Democrat attorney general from the District of Columbia, they filed a lawsuit against the president and against the president's businesses, alleging that he was violating the emoluments clause to the Constitution. Now, you've got to follow me on this. The argument is because President Trump owns hotel properties, and, and right now they're, they're in a trust, he's not actively managing them, but he owns hotel properties. The argument is, hey, if you have a foreign dignitary that stays at your hotel, um, he then, that foreign dignitary, you know, pays the room rates, etc. Well, you stand to benefit, you being the owner of the hotel, or the if you're, you know, an investor in the corporation, hey, you're, you are benefiting. So the argument is, okay, Trump owns the Trump hotels. What happens is some foreign dignitary stays there or some government official stays at the hotel. They pay the regular room rates and indirectly down the line that may serve to benefit President Trump. So this means he's violating the emoluments clause. This was always a a huge, huge reach. But you had a district judge in Maryland who said, oh, let's have a trial on this and let's issue subpoenas. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals shut this down today. They said, no, this this. This was an attenuated reading of this particular law, and they said, moreover, State of Maryland, District of Columbia, you don't have standing to sue, meaning you don't have you don't have an interest. Like for example, I can uh, I can I can read about I can read about a hit and run situation that that happened you know six blocks from here, and I can say, oh, that's just terrible. But I can't sue because I wasn't involved in the the collision. I wasn't hurt by this. I I don't have a cause of action. I don't have what they say is standing to sue. And in a, how many pages? A 36-page decision that I read this morning, so you don't have to, the Court of Appeals, and I think is pretty well-reasoned, said, look, this, this is the first time that this has ever been raised in a couple hundred years. They essentially say, we recognize that this is a political attack as much as it's a legal attack. They say the problem with this is, yeah, in theory, you know, maybe some people do stay at the hotel because indirectly, you know, it's connected to the president. But they also say, you know, the flip side of this is a lot of people probably don't stay at the hotel because it's connected with the president. Bottom line of this is you haven't been hurt. We don't think this is a violation of this clause they have tossed it, and this pretty much ends the litigation. Um, I hate to say I told you so, but when this stuff first happened about a year ago, 
I said that this was probably going to be how it turns out. Will they try to convince the Supreme Court to take it, throw good money after bad? Maybe. But this was a loser of a lawsuit all along. It was another one of these things that was designed to be sort of a nuisance directed at, at President Trump. And in this particular case, in what shouldn't surprise anybody, the Court of Appeals rejected the case. A big win for President Trump. When we come back, when we come back, just because Scott Walker could do it doesn't mean it's right. Stick around. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Just because it seems like crying over spoiled milk doesn't mean that there's not a legitimate concern. Here's what I mean. In Wisconsin, the governor has the most expansive veto power of a budget that and legislation in general that, that any governor in the United States has. When Tommy Thompson was the governor, Tommy Thompson had what they used to refer to as the Vanna White veto, meaning he could veto individual letters out of the legislation to make completely different words. That, that's how broad this was. And he did it all the time. You know, he had many cases. He had a Democratic legislature. They'd send him the budget. He didn't like it. And he would just take out different letters to create completely different words to do what he wanted. He and Doyle also were able to use what they call a Frankenstein veto to string together parts of two or more sentences in order to create a new sentence. And what these new sentences would do is often do completely the opposite of what the legislature intended. Now, the, the voters did away with that, um, did away with that, and the, the power of a governor to veto stuff is more limited, but it's still the broadest veto power in the country. For example, Tony Evers used his veto power to take out different words and create, well, situations where the way he did it, he was able to drew a lot, spend a lot more money than the legislature intended by the way that he would redraft sentences. Admittedly, not as powerful and not as broadly as Tommy Thompson or to an extent Jim Doyle did, but he was still able to do this. Scott Walker rarely vetoed things in the budget. And that's because it was a Republican legislature and a Republican governor. So most of the stuff that was in the governor in the budget was stuff that Walker approved of. But now you've got a Republican legislature, you've got a Democrat governor, and you have the Democratic governor who's using this broad veto power to change the intent of the legislature. So now what's happened is you have a number of Republicans who are coming forward and they're saying, well, well, look, what we want to do is is we think we think this veto power is too broad. We think it should be more in line with the veto power that governors across the rest of the country have, which gives them the right to strike provisions or clauses or whatever, but essentially not be able to rewrite, you know, rewrite our legislation. All right, that's their argument. Now, of course, when they say that, the Democrats in Evers office, they go nuts and they say, well, this is just, this is, again, they're, they're crying over spilled milk. They didn't have a problem with it when it was a Republican governor. Now that it's a Democrat governor, that they do. And the, the flip side would also be true. If you had, I think, a Democrat legislature and a Republican governor, my guess is you would have the same arguments that are being made. I understand it's impossible to take politics out of this. I, I get it. 
And I understand that the way you're going to view this is going to perhaps perhaps be shaped by, are you glad that Tony Evers is the governor, or are you sorry that Tony Evers is the governor? Having said that, though, if you take politics aside, put it all aside for a minute, forget whether it's Scott Walker or Tony Evers, forget you know whether the Democrats control the Assembly and the Senate or the Republicans do, my point would be, as a matter of public policy, I think these veto powers should be restricted. I think the idea of reining in a governor, whether it's Tony Evers or Tommy Thompson or Jim Doyle or Scott Walker, reining in their ability to essentially remake a budget based on selectively taking this word out or that word out, I think that's bad public policy, and I think it's wrong. And that's why, while I don't expect that it's going to happen, I think as a matter of public policy, it would be a good idea, again, for future governors, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, and future legislatures, whether they're Republican or Democrat, I think reining in the governor's almost unlimited veto power would be a good thing. Governors, in my opinion, should be able to veto provisions. There's a provision in the budget you don't like, boom, I have no problem with you striking it out. Reworking the sentence, though, to create, I don't know, an extra $65 million in spending or take away spending. I I just I think that's bad public policy. I mean, look, I understand this is kind of wonky, but 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This, this broad veto power has always bothered me. That's one of the reasons I supported the constitutional amendment back in the day to get rid of the Vanna White veto and the Frankenstein veto. I just think, again, a governor shouldn't be able to, in this case, reshape a budget by simply like taking out words that create something completely different than the legislature intended. If the governor doesn't like a provision, he or she has any every right in the world to veto it, and then they can override it or not. But to use this power to restructure something into something that was not intended by the legislature, I don't care if it's a Republican governor. Like I say, Walker didn't have to use this very much because you had a Republican legislature and everybody was kind of in lockstep. But whether whether... It's a Republican governor and a Democratic assembly or vice versa. It's bad policy. It's bad policy to give a governor this much power. And that's why I support these efforts to rein this in. Now, my guess is it's probably not going to go anywhere because people are going to look at this. And if you're a Democrat, you're going to look at this and saying, well, they're just they're just trying to screw over Tony Evers, you know, after eight years of Scott Walker. And I understand how how people can look at it from that perspective. Uh, I, I understand that. But I'm trying to think of the big picture and I'm trying to think past 2019 and past 2022, when who knows who the next governor is going to be, or past 2026, or wherever, and try to figure out what's good for the for the state. And I, candidly, I think rolling back the governor's power to essentially change policy provisions by use of the veto pen, I think that would be good public policy. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's talk to Bill and Racine. Bill, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Hi, Bill. Long-time listener. Um, the number's three. 
Three. Three. Any governor should be able to veto three small items for the whole bill, and that's it. The three most important ones to them. Other than that, send it back or veto the whole thing. Yeah, so in other words, you either accept it or, or don't. Well, I'd have they, to, yeah. And cut out three things that they think is they think are ridiculous and be done with it. Hmm. Well, I got Bill, I got I got to think that through. I mean, I I I because I look, in most states and and it does vary from state to state, but most states governors can take out clauses. I mean, but you have to take out the whole clause. You have to take out the whole provision. You don't want to you don't want to fund a Tesla dealership, fine, you strike the whole thing, and then the legislature can decide whether they want to override it or not. And I guess I don't necessarily have a problem. I don't want to completely and totally, um, you know, emasculate the governor from, from their right to, you know, their role in, you know, shaping policy. So I'd have to think through the, the three things. But I, but I do think that the governor shouldn't be able to use a veto power to create something that, that wasn't there you know, in the first place, let's talk to Dave in Waukesha. Dave, you're in WTMJ. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? Real well, thank you. What do you think? Well, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, you know, really, the bottom line is is it's the legislature's job to control the purse. It's their job to come up and present the, the governor, whoever it may be, um, you know, what they feel is, is a budget. And if he wants to strike something, you take the whole thing out. Right. You can't, you know, parse together I mean, could you've essentially neutered them then at that point? I mean, when you get right down to it. Well, right, and created your your own sort of document by the, this sort of creative use of that. And I just I just don't think that's the. I'm with you. I don't think that's the the role of the different branches. And I understand we can't talk about this without people saying, "Well, look at the powers that Scott Walker had, or look at what Tommy Thompson did." But I'm trying to think of the future. Does it make well, yeah. it a better state? Well, nobody and nobody looks at it, you know, like a. In totality, as yeah. far as yeah, where's it going to go from there? You know, the the whole point being is the way it's set up now is the legislature brings bills, the governor can he can veto the entire you know clause as you would say you know whatever, take that all out. If there's enough to override, you know, if the legislature want to come back and override his veto, they have the option to be able to try and do that. You know, yeah. but I mean, you can't just have somebody take something and it's. Right, right, exactly. Right, right. Thanks, and that's precisely. And again, I, I, Evers has the has the power right now to do it, just like Walker did. And even that's a little bit reduced from the power that Doyle and Thompson had. It's the. It's just. It's it's wrong. I mean, it's it's just inconsistent with the way other governors do. And I think it's too broad. And will you get consensus on it? No, but should we? Yes. All right. Coming up right after the news, I want to tell you about something. And the question is going to be: Is it creepy? Is it crazy? Is it sweet? Would you do it if you had the dough? Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. All right. If this topic had come up five years ago, I freely acknowledge my reaction would have been, that's creepy, that's crazy, who in their right mind would do it? Now, I still have an element of that to me about this topic, but I'm also thinking, well, maybe I'm not sure I would do it, but I can understand. If you want to see the whole details, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. Big story in uh, the Washington Post today that caught my attention. And the question is, when is the best time to clone your dog? Yeah, to clone your dog. And, and see, here, here, here is the deal. 
for many of us, and, and this is, you know, for many of us, our pets, our, our dogs, our cats are, are members of the family. There, there's, there's just no question uh, about it. And, and that's certainly, I mean, I talk a lot about my dog, Sasha. It's, there, there's, there's just no question about it. She is a member of the family. And, you know, when we, for example, when my wife Fran and I are getting ready to go on trips, you know, one of the, one of the big challenges is always, okay, who, who are we going to find to take care of Sasha? Because it's not going to be just, just anyone. And if we can't find somebody that I trust and appreciate to take care of her, that, that, you know, we're not going. That's kind of the bottom line. Now, thankfully, we have a couple very dear friends who are very, very good and have helped us out on that thing in the past. But Sasha is a member of, of the family. So what happens when, the dog gets older, and in- inevitably you're dealing with some of those end-of-life questions. Well, there are two companies in the country that will clone dogs. It costs $50,000 to do this for a dog. It costs $35,000 to do this for a cat. Don't know why there's the difference. The process is relatively simple. What happens is a veterinarian extracts a ticket tissue sample from the pet while it's alive and then it costs you about 1600 bucks and the dna from the dog's tissue is preserved in liquid nitrogen then you know once you want the cloning to take place what happens is you ship the dna to you know one of these two places to do it and you write him a check for 50 grand for a dog or $35,000 for a cat and what they will do, the process that they use is the pet's DNA is used to create embryos. And then um, the embryos are transferred into surrogate mothers. And the owner is promised one healthy puppy or, or a kitten. And if it doesn't work, well, you get your money back. Um, if <clears throat> it, see, Sometimes, however, you know, these pregnancies, they say, result in two or three clones. Um, they say, you know, one of the questions is, is the personality of the clone dog going to be the same? And the companies that do this say, we can never guarantee that. But what we're finding is that, you know, temperament is genetically linked and that, you know, personality seems to have a, a link as well. And so they said, we're, no, we, we don't guarantee you that this is going to be like a reincarnation of, of your pet, that it's going to be exactly the same because we can't promise you that. But you know, what we found is that, you know, in many cases, that the temperament and the personality of the clone are remarkably similar to the original animal. Now, Barbara Streisand, I never thought I'd be mentioning Barbara Streisand on my program. Barbara Streisand had this done, and, you know, she had a, her, she had a pet that had been with her for like 14 years. She had it cloned and, and got, you know, three puppies, two of which, you know, lived with her, one of which she gave away to, to a friend. Story I'm looking at in the Washington Post talks about this couple. Um, he was the right fielder for the Seattle Mariner. Um, no, um, they, they lived in, they lived in Virginia and, you know, she was very, very attached to her dog. And so as the dog got older, she made arrangements to, you know, have the dog cloned. And, and right now, you know, she's got two dogs that she just absolutely loves and look identical to what her dog looked like. All right. Our number is 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Like I say, it's fifty grand to do this. So it's certainly not for everybody. 
And maybe it's not for anybody, except some people are, in fact, doing this. So let's tee this up. And, and particularly those of you, I guess I really, those of you who are pet lovers, if you don't get if you don't get why people own dogs and cats, well, then it's easy to say, why in the world would anybody, you know, do this? And the other alternative, of course, is that you could always, given the fact that, you know, you, you have so many different animals that are out there looking to be, you know, adopted. Is it is it irresponsible? Is it ethical? Is it moral um, to instead of going down to the Humane Society and picking up a, a dog that needs to be, you know, adopted to try to, you know, again, clone an existing dog at the cost of 50 grand? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Creepy, crazy, or if I had the money... Maybe this is kind of sweet, and I would consider it. Cloning your pet to, uh, again, I don't guarantee it. And it's interesting, like the story I, I've got a link to, they, they've got pictures of all these pets, and, and the cloned animals, when this works, I, I don't know, I can't tell you about personality, can't tell you about temperament, but they, they look almost almost identical to the the dog that the, the DNA tissue was taken from. It's almost scary. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, creepy, um, scary. How do you feel? We will discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Have a text. Jeff, I had a friend who did this with his beloved cat about 15 years ago. Made a clone for $80,000 back then, but it only lived a couple years and had various health problems. However, it looked and behaved like the original. Maybe technology is more refined now. Jeff, as much as I love my two little dogs, uh, there are so many dogs that need a home. I think adopting a rescue that would be more important. Um, here's a text. Jeff, I've loved my dogs and missed those that died very much, but because I wouldn't clone any family member, I wouldn't diminish their value by simply copying them. Like the movie, I prefer the idea that their souls entered into the body of a new life, preferably my next puppy. 414-799-1620. Jeff, it must be nice to have 50000 bucks to spend on a dog. This is crazy. It's how we get zombies. Playing God seems dangerous. All right. More and more people, though, are starting to do it. Now, that's clearly not a mainstream thing. All right. Crazy, creepy, or, well, if you have the money, I understand why people would do it. Let's start with Emily in Milwaukee. Emily, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Yes, I think it's uh, creepy and scary. And uh, I had two dogs kind of recently pass away, and I just wouldn't want to replace them at all. I think it's kind of like you're playing God, like some other people have said, and they're so individual and they have such personalities. I would want to take another dog and, you know, then help that dog. Mm-hmm. Would you think that? Now it, it it's amazing. I'm looking at some of these these stories. The dogs that are produced as clones, they're they almost look exactly like you know the dogs that were the you know that were the source of the DNA. Um, is it is it possible that you could say, oh, gee, I, I just I really hate to see my one dog go. This is a way of kind of like perpetuating him or her. No, and I don't have children, but I think actually it's probably a good lesson in life and death. If you would have a child um, to teach them about grief. So I think it's kind of a natural thing to to do. And, you know, like I said, then get another dog and right. uh, or another cat. And that would be a way to honor that pet. So even if the price came down to 
$5,000. It's not something you'd be interested in. No, not at all. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Let's talk to Glenn in Bayview. Glenn, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, I have a working dog, and this dog makes money because of something he can do uh, detection-wise. Mm-hmm. He happens to be exceptional in this field. Uh, so if they drop the price to 30000 I would definitely do it. It's not a big emotional decision to me. Uh, he's, you know, like a business partner. Okay. Uh, but uh, he, because of his particular skill set uh, and combination of abilities, um, he's he's just exceptional. Now I, I, I get it. But I, I, twenty. I guess I would imagine that they can't get just like they can't guarantee that the temperament. And the personality is going to be the same. I, I would imagine that they couldn't guarantee that the clone would have the same whatever unique ability that that your current dog has. Would that give you pause? Um, it might a little bit, but the fact is, you know, it's uh, a scent ability, yeah. ability to you know work well as far as you know, uh, you know, six hours. Yeah. Um, and it, it would, yeah. so to me, it would justify it. Uh, right. you know, I mean, th- this dog is kind of like having a child that has that's a savant, and at the right. same time has autism. Right. Uh, you know, you different little animal, but right. Uh, Interesting. It, it, this is decision wise at thirty thousand. I think I would think very very hard about it. Interesting. Now, thank, thanks for the call. I guess I. I, I, I was really intrigued by this story because if, if you're a regular listener to this program, you know what my dog means to me. I think, and you know, like I said, five years ago, I would have just dismissed this as just kind of creepy and crazy. Uh, I, I guess I, I'm taking out the, I don't know that I'd use the words creepy and crazy. I, I still, I wouldn't do it again for a lot of the reasons that are, that are out there. I think, you know, it'll be, now, thankfully, my dog is only four years old, so we're not going to be having this conversation for a long time. And my guess is she'll probably end up being the last dog that that you know we have. I that's kind of my sense, you know, because if she you know lives to how long normally Pomeranians live, I, I don't know that I'm going to be in a position that I'm going to want to go out and you know buy another dog that's going to live you know that that long. So I'm not sure I'm going to necessarily have that choice. But you know. I guess I look at my dog and I think she is so unique and individual and our relationship, yeah, our relationship is so special. I, I think I, I, you're trying to replicate that with a clone. I, I don't know. There's just, and I'm having trouble articulating it, but I, I just, I don't think I could, I don't think I could do that for a wide variety of reasons. But here's the bottom line. Right now at a cost of $50,000, it's out of most people's price range. But my guess is, that this process is going to come down in price. And if it starts to become more affordable, my guess is there's going to be a lot more people who decide to take advantage of this, especially you know if they're in a position where they can get it down and they can guarantee that, yeah, they're going to be able to use this DNA to you know reproduce dogs or cats, and they're going to be able to live that long. 50 grand, I don't think so. Candidly, I don't think I would do it for any price, but this is where we are with technology. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
So very glad to have you with us. Um, the, the news today, if I, if I mention the, na- the name of the actor Rip Torn, you you might not remember who I'm talking about, but my guess is if, if you saw any of his performances, you, you certainly would. Rip Torn was the uh, guy who played the supervisor in the Men in Black movies, for example. In the in the Albert Brooks movie Defending Your Life, he played the he, he played the attorney. He's it was a Broadway actor. He's probably best known for creating one of the most iconic characters in TV history on a show that that many people never saw. It's the the Larry Sanders show, which was a Gary Gary Shandling who passed away a couple of years ago. He played this kind of third rate talk show host, and Rip Torn played the producer Artie. It is one of the most iconic characters ever created on on television. And if you're ever looking for something that's incredibly entertaining and holds up really well, and you can find it as they're live streaming it somewhere, watch the Larry Shander show and, and watch Rip Torn. Rip Torn, he was also kind of a train wreck. Um, lots of drunk driving arrests. His most spectacular one was a few years ago, he breaks into a bank at night, drunk, um, his story was, he's carrying a gun at the time too. His story was he, he, he was drunk and he thought it was his house, you know, but you know, it's, he's just, he was just one of those kind of guys and he probably would have gotten more jobs in Hollywood, except he was kind of difficult to get along with, but incredibly talented in any event. He's always been a favorite of mine and he passed away at the age of 88. So, um, if you ever, if you ever want to see just an incredible performer in an incredible role, Check out the Larry Sanders show, um, and, and you'll see Rip Torn, and he just does does an amazing job. He did all sorts of other stuff as as well. He was in line to get the, the movie Easy Rider. He was in line to play the part that Jack Nicholson ended up playing, but apparently he got into a fight with Dennis Hopper, who was one of the other stars beforehand, and there was some question. Ultimately, Hopper like pulled a knife on him or whatever. This is I assume they're in some drunken drug fuel brawl back in the 60s and ended up Jack Nicholson got that spot in um, Easy Rider and it launched Jack Nicholson's career in a way that Rip Torn didn't have. His Actually, his last name was Torn and, and Rip was apparently a family nickname. So if you ever see something with Rip Torn in it, you know it's going to be really, really good. He passed away at the age of 88. His performances will be missed. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Hey, coming up in the next hour of the program, uh, two different topics, both that have a visual element to them. And so if you happen to follow me, on, uh, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I've got links to the two of the stories. Um, it's actually some amazing video. One involves something that happened at Disneyland last Saturday. I thought Disneyland was supposed to be the happiest place on earth. Not if you watch this particular video. We're going to use that as a launching point for a conversation, but you can see it ahead of time. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. And the story I've been waiting all day to talk to you about, woman who is now claiming racism because she gets on an airplane and the flight attendants tell her that she needs to cover up. Got that story, including some photographs of what the woman was wearing. We're going to talk about whether the airline was out of line. I'll describe her outfit. She calls it a, they call it a romper. That's that's what they describe. She describes it as a romper. That's this particular article of clothing. We'll discuss what the standards are and whether or not her allegations of racism might have a basis. So if you want to see those, follow me at Jeff Wagner 620. All right. Now, far be it from me 
to give business advice to otherwise successful businesses. At the same time, there are occasions when I cannot resist. Now, one of the things that has dogged President Trump for the entire tenure of his presidency, it's not it's not the Russia investigation, but it's the the the, the his interaction with women. There's the whole, you know, you have the Access Hollywood story, the, the tape that surfaced from 2005 or wherever that was. You've got the allegations by various women, perhaps most notably the pornographic film actress Stephanie Clifford, a.k.a. Stormy Daniels. There's going to be a point in time where nobody's going to remember who Stormy Daniels is, but we're not quite at that. And actually, that will be a good point in time in American history, but we're not there yet. Everybody knows the allegation. She says that, you know, after a golf tournament back in 2007 or whatever, she had a one-night stand with with Donald Trump, and it didn't involve a lot of standing, I guess. And, you know, now she's, you know, we know where this is, whole thing has gone after that. But you would think at this point in time, given the Stormy Daniels stuff and all this, that you would think that the the Trump, not only the Trump White House, but the Trump businesses would be sensitive to, I, I don't know, strippers and, you know, allegations of misconduct and things like that, which is what makes this story kind of mind boggling to me. And again, I, I don't care whether you're a Trump supporter or a Trump detractor. And I know that there's a lot of attacks that are launched against the president that are cheap shots. And this one isn't necessarily against the president, but it's a business decision that one of his business arms made that candidly, I, I just I just kind of shake my head and say, did, did somebody think maybe you need to run this up the flagpole? Here's the story. Doral Golf Course is a is a very, very famous golf course in Miami. They used to play, well, they, they, they still do to an extent. They play some big PGA tournaments there, and it's a series of multiple golf courses. It's really, really difficult. It's a... It's a high-end golf course, very, very special. All right, they, as oftentimes golf courses do, they make money by hosting events. All right, fine. You know, we're going to have the Leukemia Fund golf outing. It's going to be on Saturday. All right, you got, got stuff like that. Well, this isn't the Leukemia Fund, or it's not the Anti-Measles Fund. Here's the deal. Saturday, President Trump's golf resort in Doral, Florida, is scheduled to host a golf tournament put on by a Miami-area strip club, which will allow golfers to pay for a stripper to serve as their caddy girl while they play at the club. The Shadow All-Star Tournament is organized by Shadow Cabaret, a strip club in Hialeah, Florida. Um, This is the first time that the club has held a tournament at Trump Doral, the Trump name and family crest are displayed prominently in the Strips Club's advertising material, which offers golfers the caddy girl of your choice. The owner of the Strip Club said they didn't intend to send a political statement by choosing the resort. Rather, they said the choice was for luxury. The golfers are VIPs. They involve a VIP environment. They said that there would be no nudity at the resort. The caddies, quote-unquote, would wear pink mini skirts and what he called a sexy white polo. Afterwards, the golfers and the dancers would return to another venue, the cabaret, that would be the strip joint itself, for what he described as a very tasteful burlesque show, which could involve nudity. Hmm. A very tasteful burlesque show, which could involve nudity. 
Huh, what do you think, Rue? The, the, the mind kind of reels backwards. Well, okay, here, here's my point on this. And, and I'm, I'm sure this is perfectly legitimate and all those types of things. But if I were the manager of this particular resort, understanding, you know, that this is a Trump property, understanding if you sign up for an event like this, that, you know, you're then going to be featured on all this advertising and understanding that if you if you do run a story like this and you sign up for an event like this, there is undoubtedly going to be a story like this in The New York Times and The Washington Post. I think this might be one where if I'm the manager of Trump Doral, I say, Mr. Strip Club owner, I, I, I appreciate, you know, your interest in this. But you know what? I think under the current circumstances, it's not a good mix. And the idea of rich people paying money to have strippers serve as their caddies before you go back for the very tasteful nude women show, that that just might not work out at this particular point in time. Two years from now, six years from now, maybe we hope you keep us in mind. Uh Obviously, nobody. I assume nobody made that call because my guess is if somebody made that call, somebody upstairs in the business chain would have said this is perhaps not the image that we necessarily want. But it's apparently going to go ahead. So if you've got a whole bunch of money and you're in the Miami area on Saturday and you're looking for, I don't know, a tasteful burlesque show where some nudity might be involved and playing golf at Trump Doral, well, there's an offer for you. I don't know if it says how much it costs. Um, let's see. Um, you, you can get a package that combines, if you want to stay at the place, you can get a VIP upgrade for $1,000, including a half-hour room in the VIP room. I, my advice would be stay far, far away from that. Don't know how much the ultimate uh, event costs itself, but think I'm going to be passing. I'm not sure what I'm doing Saturday. Oh, I'm playing I'm playing golf with my wife at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Hmm. <laughs> She's the caddy girl of my choice. I'm telling you right there. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. When we come back, the cost of cheap eats is going up. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. <laughs> So glad to have you with us. Brewers fans, join us at the Waukesha Meyer this Saturday from 11 to 1 p.m. 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. You can meet Freddie Peralta, get an autograph, and you can also enter for a chance to win tickets to an upcoming game. That's this Saturday from 11 to 1 at the Waukesha Meyer. All Brewers fans are welcome. Gru, who is producing the show today and always. Sometimes they just make this too easy. Okay, Bastille Days is this week. Downtown, you know, our celebration of French culture. The, the streetcar, Tom's Trolley runs through the perimeter of Bastille Days. So in order to take advantage of this, they have, you know, they're trying to capitalize on on this and they've posted a video including the appearance of a mime. You know, okay, so and they got a mime. It's now associated with Tom's trolley folly. But they've also they've decided to change the name of the streetcar during the Bastille Day run. Now they call the streetcar the hop. Would you like to guess what they are what they are creatively calling the hop during the run of Bastille Days? Would you like to guess? I can't think of a word in the French language that sort of rhymes with hop, so I I'm not sure. They're calling it lay hop. 
Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh boy, I I wonder how many creative geniuses we got together with that one to say, oh, let let's we want to adopt French culture here. We're going to call it Le Hop. <laughs> it's like, all right, uh, you you could also call it La Fiasco. That's just which is you know that would be another you know French term for that Le Hop. Okay, so I'm reading the story in in the journal Sentinel about this, and I, I will read this with a a relative straight face. From Le Hop, riders can look out at the festival and Milwaukee's own 43-foot-tall replica of the Eiffel Tower, pretending they're on the Paris Metro. The streetcar has a stop on East Kilbourne Avenue at Cathedral Square adjacent to the replica. All right. I, I don't know how to say this in a nice fashion, but okay, it's one thing if you want to take the streetcar to Bastille Days and, and things like that. But if if you're riding on Le Hop in downtown Milwaukee, and all of a sudden you say, "Oh my goodness, I, I, it's it's like I'm on the Paris Metro," you need to get yourself to Paris, okay? You you need to you need to find that next that next radio host sponsoring a trip to Paris. Keep tuned on that, and, and you maybe talk about you know that. But uh, yeah, they've come up with the idea Le Hop for. You cannot make this stuff up. You know, it's. It, I wonder if the same people that thought it would be a good idea to rename the Marquette men's basketball team as the Gold were the ones who came up with the idea of let's name it Le Hop. Anyhow, Le Hop will be running over the course of the next couple days. And yes, yes, I, I, I tell you, and all the time I was down at Summerfest driving through these streets, which are now almost impassable in certain respects because they've been torn up and where used to be lanes for cars now there's the streetcar that i never saw running a- at all um it's and making it very very difficult to get anywhere in milwaukee for the streetcar like i say that when you see it running it's pretty much always empty i guess the the issue will be all right is, is this going to be a big boon to bastille days which is actually a festival i always like but now you've got le hop and you can ride le hop and pretend that you are on the paris metro Okay. All right. There was a fascinating story in the Chicago Tribune today that talks about unintended consequences. In in the Chicago area, there has been legislation that has mandated a, a dramatic increase in the minimum wage. And right now, it's up to 13 bucks an hour. They anticipate that it's going to be up to 15 bucks an hour in the next year and a half or so. All right. So everybody says, oh, that's great. You know, you're paying these these fast food workers more money, et cetera, et cetera. This is wonderful. Well, what they do is they do something that a lot of journalists don't have the guts to do. They try to really look at the impact and they don't talk to politicians. They don't talk to economists. They don't talk to, you know, people who are just the pundits. But what they do is they go out and they start interviewing the people that are running fast food restaurants. And they're asking them, okay, now you've seen a gradual increase in the minimum wage. And so now everybody's got to be paid 13 bucks an hour, and pretty soon it's going to go up to $15 an hour. What is happening? You know, tell us the real world. And the stories are fascinating. For example, one guy who runs a, a sandwich shop says, um, okay, when he started a few years ago, the hamburger was 5 bucks." Now it's gone up to $7. Pork boy, poor boy sandwich used to be $6.99. Now it's $9.99. He said that they have removed more than two dozen items from their menu, including popular dishes, 
um, and they've cut back to cut back on expensive ingredients as well as prep time so that he can staff fewer people per shift. So what this guy is saying is, you know, we, we've had to raise prices and we've had to cut back selections and scale back on, on some of our offerings because the contents were too high. Another person who runs, again, a fast food restaurant says, we're struggling to keep a good price and the same quality that we've already had. But, you know, what we've had to do is a couple years ago, our hot, this is the place sell hot dogs. Our hot dogs were two ninety five. Now we're up to four seventy five, and you know we used to have these specials a uh, dollar for for something. We've had to to scrap them because the math just became unworkable. Because the number one cost that we're seeing go up for our fast food restaurants, it, it's yes, is there a little bit of a of an increase with materials? You know the food they buy, yeah. But they said the biggest increase is the labor costs. And the only way that they have been able to deal with that has either been to scale back the number of employees and the number of hours, and number two, to increase the price of things. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. See, I think this is one of these untold stories about this. You know, we all focus on, and all the media attention is always on, well, you know, we need to get living wages for people who are doing this entry-level work, and we, we should just wave our magic wand and pay them 13 or $15 an hour without paying attention to the flip side, which is, all right, those of us who are consumers, heck, we're consumers who might drive four miles out of our way to save 10 cents on a gallon of gas. If all of a sudden the burger at your favorite, you know, burger doodle, if all of a sudden that burger goes up 50 cents in cost or a dollar in cost or, you know, the cost of your meal used to be $5.50 and now it goes up to seven bucks, that I believe that that's going to have a huge impact on customer tastes. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And from the perspective of the small businesses, really, what choices do they have? I mean, you know, you've got you've got your overhead costs that you got to pay. And like they say, okay, for these businesses who are dealing with it, well, okay, we can cut back on the expensive ingredients. We can drop some popular things from the menu. We can make it simpler so we don't have to employ as many people. But at the end of the day, we have to have, you know, we got to have price increases, right? I mean, are you willing to pay two or three bucks more for your hot dog or your burger or whatever as a result of these mandated minimum wage increases. Renee in Brookfield. Renee, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Renee. Um, it's not just with the fast food industry, like other, you know, jobs that don't pay a lot either. Every time there is a cost of living increase, prices of pretty much everything go, goes up. Yep. Because they have to pay the employees this in, increase in price. And shipping goes up. The product prices go up. So where are these people then? Right back where they started from. So then they're going to be screaming they want 20 bucks an hour. Well, I mean, thanks to God. I mean, look, and I see my, my beef has always been that, 
you, you pay people what the job is worth, and that is what the market decides. Now, the reality is, and I talk about this a lot around here, you know, min- forget minimum wage. You, you can't find, talk to people who own fast food restaurants, you can't find anybody that's going to work at minimum wage. And you, just, you can't find anybody that you want to hire that's going to work at minimum wage. So, I mean, obviously the market sets a certain price. I bring this up only to say, and it's an interesting story in the Chicago Tribune, What's the real-world effect of mandating increases in the minimum wage, particularly at these fast food places? The effect is higher costs for consumers. And a lot of the businesses are worried that you're going to get to a certain point where somebody who's used to paying 250 for a hot dog isn't going to pay 4 bucks for a hot dog, and they're going to decide, well, I'll stay home or, or go somewhere else. That's a real problem, and it's not – It's I think it's a grossly undercovered aspect of this entire debate. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Uh, breaking news. Uh, the Secretary of Labor, Alexander Acosta, he's giving a press conference right now, and he's saying he's – He's not going to resign. And let me just add, he shouldn't resign. Here, here's the, the story for those of you who might not have been paying a lot of attention. There's this billionaire financier. His name is Jeffrey Epstein, 66 years old, and the guy's a major league sleazebag. He was, back in the day, one of Bill Clinton's running mates. I don't mean like an Al Gore running mate, but I mean they, they, were, they were buddies. And they used to travel to places and things like that. He's, um, he's again, he, he's a rich financier. He's the darling of the Hollywood elite. You know, he's one of these guys. He's, you know, New York and Los Angeles and Miami. And he travels all over. And the, the, the particularly the well-off left just absolutely loves this guy. And he donates to all the right causes and things like that. He knows Trump sort of because Trump was a New York business guy. This guy was a New York business guy. So, you know, they had various interactions, but I don't get the idea that they were tight friends or anything like that. Epstein is also a major league sleazebag, and the rumors were out there for years and years and years that he had a taste for younger women. And by younger, I I don't mean in their 20s and 30s, although that might be the case too, but I mean, you know, teenage girls, all right? And so I don't think that this was that necessarily, that was that much of a secret among the Hollywood elite and and the guy's pals and things like that. Well, anyhow, what happens is in in Miami in like 2005, 2006, 2007, couple minors come forward and they say, okay, we were sexually assaulted by Epstein, right? At that point in time, <clears throat> they start investigations. The state's attorney starts an investigation. The feds start an investigation. Back then, the guy who is now the labor secretary, his name is Alexander Acosta, he was the United States attorney for the Southern District of, of Miami, right? So this would have been under under President Bush. So what happens is they investigate the case. There's a couple women who have come forward, and they negotiate a, a settlement of the case. Ultimately, what happens is the feds defer to the state. So they say, okay, here, here's the deal. 
We're not going to go ahead. And, and this, by the way, it happens a, a lot where you have these joint investigations. A lot of times the state will say, okay, we're not going to pursue it. You go ahead. You, you get him on the federal charges or vice versa. The feds will say, okay, we're going to defer. You know, you go for the state charges. And so that's what they did here. They happened to allow the case to be handled on the state level. And what ended up happening is he was prosecuted pled guilty and ended up, you know, serving a little bit of time. Nowhere near as much time as, as he deserved. But that that was the resolution. And, you know, what they said, what Acosta, who was the U.S. attorney, said is, you know, based on the evidence we had at the time, you know, we thought this was a reasonable resolution of this matter. So he serves his time and he goes on and he's, you know, again, as soon as he got out of jail or off probation or whatever, immediately accepted back in the Hollywood community. I mean, he, this is this billionaire guy. Well, the New York U.S. Attorney's Office has a bunch of women from the New York area who start coming forward and saying, hey, this guy sexually assaulted us. And long story short, they bring charges alleging that between 2002 and 2005, he was doing the same thing to young girls in New York that you know he was accused of doing in, in Miami. And they search his place and they find a safe and the safe has... All sorts of um, nudie pictures of young girls and stuff like that, which, again, you just kind of step back and say, my God, what arrogance this guy would have, you know, that you would keep these types of things. But clearly he thought he was above the law and he thought he could get away with it. So now the New York authorities are going ahead. They're they're charging him with various crimes. He's trying to get out from under it by saying, well, I I pled guilty in Miami and this is the same sort of offense. I don't think that's going to go anywhere. But... Now you have the opponents of President Trump who are saying, okay, the the labor secretary, Alexander Acosta, he was the U.S. attorney in Miami, you know, who cut this deal originally. This is appalling. You know, he should be out because of this. Well, I I guess, first of all, my my only cautionary note would be you, you don't know back in 2006 or 2007, you don't know what information the U.S. attorney had and the you know, state's attorney had, and I guess it's really easy in retrospect to say, oh, you should have gone to trial, you should have sought, you know, bigger sentences. The the uh, labor secretary, Acosta, formerly U.S. attorney, says, hey, the charges that the grand jury wanted to come down with, they were even less than what the guy ended up pleading guilty to. So that tells me that there were obviously problems of proof and things like that with the case. Bottom line is, to look at what, in this case, the U.S. attorney did in 2007, and say, all right, turns out that there were other things that this guy had did and other, done in other jurisdictions, and that means that, you know, your deal was bad. All right, that's kind of a scary standard, and I don't think there's too many prosecutors around here, whether it's Democrat John Chisholm in Milwaukee or, I don't know, a Republican in Waukesha, a Republican DA in Waukesha. I don't think there's too many people who, who really want to be judged by, gee, we were investigating this guy for what he did in Miami. This is the deal we made. Turns out he did all sorts of other stuff, but now you're going to tell me I made a bad deal. Jeffrey Epstein is a sleazebag. He deserves to be, in my opinion, behind bars. I hope the New York prosecution is successful. I hope they put him behind bars. All I'm saying is to now say to the Secretary of the Treasury, of the Secretary of the Labor, and I don't have any love lost for him one way or the other. But but it's clear what's happening there is is this is it's a political thing. Oh, we're trying to figure out how we can tie sleazebag child molester Jeffrey Epstein to Donald Trump. Huh. 
Well, let's see. Well, they knew each other because they were New York developers. Yeah, we've, we've got that, but that's not good enough. Well, here, you know, now the labor secretary, when he was the U.S. attorney a dozen years ago, um, he, he entered into a plea agreement, which we don't think was sufficient and other people won't. So that means he's got to go. I would say give me a break. I mean, really, let the case proceed. Have Epstein go to prison. I don't think this reflects one way or the other on Alexander Acosta and his tenure as the U.S. attorney. Do really, really rich people in this country, somehow do they get their own standard of treatment? Well, yeah, that that's, that's the case, no doubt about it. And was Jeffrey Epstein perhaps treated differently over the years than he would have been otherwise? Well, keep in mind, you know, Roman Polanski child molester you have a number of people in hollywood who to this day think authorities should dismiss those charges against him i don't happen to be one of them in any event acosta says he's not stepping down i don't think based on what we know so far there's a basis for him to have to step down based on a decision that was made i'm sure based on the available evidence 12 or 13 years ago this is jeff wagner you're listening to jeff wagner on wtmj So very glad to have you with us. All right. I've been waiting all day to describe this and talk to you about this. I've got I've got a link to a couple of the videos and a picture of what's created the controversy at uh, at Jeff Wagner 620. If you follow me on Twitter, Here, here's the deal. There is this there's a woman. She's 37 years old. She is a a doctor. And she's she's a family physician from Houston. And she is on a flight from Jamaica, this is a couple weeks ago, from Jamaica to Miami. And then I assume she has a connecting flight, you know, on to, to Houston. She talks about how the day of the flight, it is extremely hot. Temperature in Jamaica, high of 94 degrees, high in Miami was 89 degrees, all right? So she gets on the plane with her eight-year-old son. She is wearing <clears throat> what is being described as as a romper. Um, it's kind of like this one-piece thing. It's there, There's no sleeves, no shoulders. It kind of starts off right across her chest, and then it results in kind of like short shorts. I mean, that that's sort of what th- this is. So she gets on the plane, and as she is walking back to her seat, apparently a flight attendant who happens to be black, all right, comes up to her. It's a male flight attendant, but I, I bring up the race because she brings up race later on. Flight attendant, who she describes as black, and she is uh, she's African American and Caribbean, so you know that's that's her race. She describes the flight attendant as black, asks her to return to the front of the plane. Another flight attendant, who was also black, spoke to her about her appearance as she stood on the jet bridge. Now, the second flight attendant is female. woman who is black says, do you have a jacket? She says, no, I do not. Um, she says, I've been given no explanation as to why I've been taken off the plane, to which the flight attendant, the female flight attendant says, well, we can't let you board the plane dressed like this. And then they start to give her a lecture about, you know, how, you know, she, she's dressed inappropriately 
and you know she she shouldn't be able to fly like that and then they point out that you know the airline has these rules that say you have to dress appropriately bare feet or offensive clothing aren't allowed now ultimately they let her on the flight they give her they give her blankets and so what she does is she goes down and she covers up with the blanket and then there's the flight but she's getting progressively madder about, you know, this and what they've said to her. Now, this is the way you know she describes it. She says, we are being policed for being black. I've seen white women with much shorter shorts board a plane without a blink of an eye. I guess if it's a nice butt versus a Serena booty, it's okay. And I think what she means by that is Serena Williams, the, the famous tennis player. I think she's saying, okay, well, if I was a, a size two white woman wearing the same outfit, nobody would say anything. But because I'm not a size two white woman, you know, now it becomes this issue. So um, American Airlines says, well, you know, we're we're sorry, you know, if you felt that you were, you know, mistreated, et cetera, et cetera. And I think they comped the flight. But now this thing has gone viral. Our number is 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I guess I have a couple takes on this, and I'm interested in your reaction as well. First of all, it's tough for me to understand the racial component to this, because like I say, the people that she dealt with that told her her clothing was inappropriate, they, they were black. So this isn't a situation where you have some 60-year-old white lady who's like tisk-tisking. You know, you have, you know, you have, you have a, two black flight attendants who are telling her that she is dressed inappropriately. I, I guess that's number one. I fail to see the racial element to this. Uh, second, you know, is, is the airline in the wrong? Well, yeah, this is the problem that airlines have, and, and they need to figure out how they're going to deal with this. When they have a vague sort of standard that says offensive clothing isn't allowed, they are leaving themselves open to this this problem because offensive is going to be in the eye of the beholder. I'm looking at what this woman was wearing. I don't think I don't think it's offensive. I mean, I don't find it offensive. My guess is that most people would look at it and, and, and would not find it offensive. I mean, okay, it's summer, it's hot. She's wearing, you know, one of these kind of, you know, low tops and, and yeah, they're they're kind of short shorts, but you, you definitely see worse there, there's there's no question about it you know you can go to summerfest you can see a lot more skin walking around you can go to state fair you'll see the same sort of thing now you know you might argue that well and I, I guess i i think without putting race into the matter i would have much more sympathy for the doctor if she would have just simply said hey this is incredibly vague that they, they singled me out and, you know, like I say, there's lots of people who wear lots shorter stuff and they're allowed to fly. It's it's playing the race card that gives me pause on this. 414-799-1620. Um, should the airline have made a big deal of it? I wouldn't. If you're going to make a big deal of it, I think you need to start having more defined standards other than simply saying, well, we're not going to allow offensive clothing because, again, you know, who decides what is offensive and how are you going to judge that? And I do suspect, I, I'm kind of sympathetic to what this lady says, that if maybe forget whether it's a white woman or a black woman or a Chinese woman. If somebody maybe in a smaller size was wearing the same thing, 
maybe they wouldn't have found that offensive. And, and that's the vagueness that comes into this. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. But again, I, I don't find this offensive. I, I, why the airline chose to make a big deal of it, I candidly don't get. Ron in Richfield. Ron, you're on WTMJ. Uh, good afternoon. Hi, Ron. I would have to say that if there's nothing out of the ordinary, these shorts are yeah. being worn and there's nothing hanging out or... Yeah. Something out of the ordinary, where somebody would be offended. It looks like something a summer. It looks like, like a. It looks a like a short fest. summer dress. Yeah, yeah. yeah yes, I was down at Summerfest. Summer yeah. yeah, And it, there isn't something like hanging out, or you're offending somebody, like you said. Well, that's kind of risky. Yeah. Or you know, yeah. if there's nothing out of the ordinary, these airlines they don't have any reason to, uh, you know, pin this, you know, appoint this person out and and right. say something. Yeah, I, I, and if they're going to do it. They need to have a lot more defined standards than just this is something that, that's offensive. Okay, so, I mean, this, she looks to me like she's wearing, they call it a romper, but this would be like kind of a, a, a short sundress, you know? And, and, yes, she's a little bit larger. Maybe she's not size two, but that doesn't change the dynamic. I mean, everything's covered up. I'm looking at pictures of her. Yeah. Right, uh, right. If right. it's nothing risque or something where you would, like, grab your child and yeah, you right. know, mask their eyes or something. <laughs> yes. Exactly if it's, right. If it's nothing out of the ordinary, no, right? Thanks for calling. And I guess I and that's my. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But yeah, that's my, that's my sense of this. I mean, now again, I, I don't. I'm. I don't. I wish we weren't talking about race because that's what I was curious about. And again, the flight attendants who created this whole thing, they were black. So I. I, I don't know that American Airlines has different standards. I, so I, I'm not sure I, I can buy into the oh, this this woman's being treated differently because she's black than because she's white. I don't know one way or the other. I'm just saying that I think American probably could have done better than to say cover up. Zachary in Waukesha. Zachary, you're on WTMJ. Hey, thanks for Mark. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I saw the picture um, on your Twitter. Yeah, it's just that I had. Um, I also hate that she brings up the race card. Um, but if you look way back in the old days when people flew on planes, uh, you used to get dressed up. Yeah, yeah, I remember uh, those days. You'd wear a suit and tie, yeah. Yeah, same thing with, like, old Packer games, like, at the ice ball. Of course, you know, everyone was bundled up. But, you know, people got dressed up to go to baseball games. And what, look at what people wear now. No shirts with letters written on their chest and yeah. all that. There was, I think they need better guy. If they're going to complain about it, you got to make better guidelines so you have actually something to stand on and you can complain against something. And I just think... Uh, yeah, they just handled it way too yeah, well. You're right. They, they did. Exactly. If, if, if you're going to start tossing people off of airplanes for for this, you, you, you need to have defined standards as to what there there is. And, and, and then you need to apply those standards across the board. Because I will tell you, you know, you look at what – okay, Saturday night, I'm down at Summerfest. That was that Billie Eilish concert. And I, I've never seen – I've never seen so many like 15, 16, and 17-year-old girls in one place at one time. The line to get into the amphitheater at one point in time stretched from the amphitheater past the Harley-Davidson tent, and you had all sorts of different looks. Um, my son-in-law and I were kind of looking at this, and we're both going, huh, that's an interesting look. Wonder what her parents said about that before she went out. But again, it, it, it's all what's offensive is in is in the eye of the beholder. And if you're going to toss people off, you better have certain standards. This is Jeff Wagner. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I don't know even how to describe this next story. So I have a link to the video. 
And if you follow me at Jeff Wagner 620 on Twitter, you, you can see it. It's This is Disneyland the other day. Now, Disneyland, not Disney World, but Disneyland in Los Angeles, Anaheim, actually. You know, supposedly the happiest place on Earth. What I, I will describe what is captured on, on this video. But it takes the whole thing takes about four minutes. And you're, you're kind of watching it. And, okay, you think your family is dysfunctional? Be glad you're not one of these people. So here's here's what happens. It, again, it's it's the other afternoon at, at Disney World. What happens is these these two women start screaming at at each other. And by the way, the video that I've sent it's kind of adult because there's all sorts of you know nasty language that's involved in this. So what happens is there's there's a it's a family. These are all families, like brothers and sisters and brothers-in-laws and mothers and one of them is in a motorized scooter and there's little kids. So okay, you you've got this group. Well, what happens is that they they start they start fight two of the people, a husband and a wife, I think start fighting a man and woman pushing a stroller with two young girls they're in front of goofy's playhouse the guy and you can see him he's wearing a red shirt he takes a swing at a woman who's with him after she spits in his face ah this is just the day in disneyland all right another guy steps in and the two men in the video start like sparring and throwing punches at each other. You can hear children screaming in the background as these adults continue to scuffle. You can see, and this is where we're going to be discussing this in a minute, you can see a park employee in the background speaking into a headset radio um, calling for backup. All right, so this fight goes on, and there's other people that are videotaping this, this, or, or at least filming this. The fight goes on for about five minutes. Woman riding a motorized scooter, she's knocked to the ground. Two people try to help her up. The fight continues. Um, guy in the red shirt punches another woman. He thought it hit his mother. Video shows the woman being knocked to the ground and the man dragging her by her hair across the pavement. Um, you know, So now by this time it's gotten so bad and so out of control that you have a couple of the, the Disneyland guests who are running in. They're trying to separate this whole thing. But it's a Pier 1 brawl. I mean, you've got women that are pulling each other's hair. You've got guys that are punching women in the face. And these are all family members. So this is... Again, you think your family's dysfunctional, be glad you're not, you know, the Adams family here. But the interesting story is this goes on for three, four, five minutes before anybody from Disneyland security rolls up. So that this fight has been allowed to, to go on. And the the controversy about this has been, you know, why why did it take so long? to, you know, handle this situation. For example, let me share a couple comments that the L.A. Times has. You know, why, where is Disneyland security? You know, would they move this slowly if it had been a terrorist attack? Now, Disneyland is saying, yes, we know that this was going on. What our security department was trying to do at first is we were trying to secure the perimeter around the fight to keep, you know, nearby guests safe, and and then we were calling for police assistance, um, but but you know we we were trying to secure the area, and we weren't going to necessarily rush in and try to break this fight up. 
Right, our number is 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I think this raises th- th- this legitimate issue for, you know, how do you deal with stuff like this in public places? Because something like this, not happened at Disneyland. So it's making all the, this, getting all this attention. But something like this could happen at Summerfest. It could happen at Festa Italiana. It could happen at German Fest. It could happen at Polish Fest. It could happen at State Fair. It, it could happen pretty much anywhere. And, you know, where you have, again, these, these dysfunctional, out-of-control people, this is a Pier 6 brawl. There's no question about it. And authorities decide we're just going to try to we're going to try to encapsulate this and wait for the cops. And if these people kill each other, well, they they kill each other. If they wail on each other, they wail on each other. We're going to try to protect all the other guests. What is security to do? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is the Disneyland position, which is hey, we called the cops. We're trying to secure the scene, protect the guests, make sure that nobody else gets hurt, and you know just just wait for the police to uh, arrive. Is that under these circumstances an unreasonable position to take? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. I'll tell you where I come down on this as well. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Brewers fans, join us at the Waukesha Meyer this Saturday from 11 to 1 p.m., 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. You can meet Freddie Peralta, get an autograph, and you can also enter for a chance to win tickets to an upcoming game. That's this Saturday from 11 to 1 at the Waukesha Meyer. All Brewers fans are welcome. Seagru, I think some of our fans might be just kind of messing with you. People call up during the break. You screen them all. Then they all drop off. You know, it's like, don't they realize all the work that you have to go through to do that? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. couple texts say, I, Jeff, I was wondering the same thing when I saw this video. You know, where was the security? And I guess what I thought was interesting about this story is that, <clears throat> yes, this happened at Disneyland, so it gets a lot more attention. But the truth of the matter is, th- this could happen anywhere. Could have happened at Summerfest. Heck, it might have. Maybe these things do happen at Summerfest, where you have, or State Fair, or Miller Park, or any of these facilities, where you have these dysfunctional people who decide that they want to duke it out with each other and knock down kids and knock over, you know, the mom on the motorized scooter or or whatever. And I guess the question becomes, you know, what's what's the role of security versus, say, the police in this particular case? I guess I find it difficult to fault the Disneyland security people. And, and let me explain why their their first job seems to me to be to protect the other guests. So if you have one or two security people and you've got five or six or seven people that are pulling hair and throwing punches and duking it out and and. For whatever it's worth, the, the people in this video, if and when you see it, they're big people. I mean, they're they're, they're big people, and they're throwing haymakers. I, I guess to me, the the first thing you got to do is is you want to secure the area to make sure that other people, you know, don't get hurt and this whole thing doesn't spread. So I, I think you know that's one of the factors. And then the second thing you do is that you you call and you you make sure that the cops are on their way. Now I will say this. 
that I, you know, Disneyland and like with Disney World and the whole Walt Disney thing, which is so incredibly, what's the word I'm looking for? Anal uh, about so many stuff. Oh, you can't take pictures of this and don't bring that in and do whatever. It is a little bit surprising to me that you couldn't have a quicker response time and that this fight could have gone on as long as it was. Because my guess is if you try to do something like this at Summerfest or at State Fair or at, at Miller Park, you know, you'd have you'd have a bigger presence of security and or cops a lot quicker. Let's talk to John and Sullivan. John, you're on WTMJ. Hey, uh, I just kind of to your point, I have been to Summerfest, seen fights there, uh, and security reacted real quick. Um, but I've also kind of recognized how Disneyland is where they need to secure the area before they go ahead and have their other guests. Right. Potentially, you know, get hurt. Um, but I did see the video, and it was surprising to me that some of the guests did try and help stop the guy in the red right. shirt. Right. Um, in which you wouldn't, I, I wouldn't expect in this day and age where most people try to go viral and take videos and pictures. Yeah, the, the, you know, that's interesting. One of the guys, after this fight is going on for a few minutes, and after one of the guys punches, one of the women in the face, and I mean, she goes down like a sack of potatoes. The guy, and he, he's like a, he's either an athletic coach or an athletic, he's, he's something, I think, at a high school in El Paso. He, and he's a big guy himself. He runs in and says, look, I, I was watching some of this, and once I saw a guy deck a girl, that was enough. And so he gets involved and tries to, to shut it down as well. It was, it, it was, it's not the type of fight that you would expect to see at Disneyland, though. No, not at all. And when I saw that guy come in, I mean, it, it looked to me like you put him straight into a headlock and yeah. kind of they had him sit down, the guy in the red shirt, sit down on the ground. Um, and from there, things kind of, you know, calmed down a bit. But right. It, no, it's just, and then and you saw the thing where the the woman on the electric motor scooter gets knocked over. I mean, it, and, and they're all related. These people are all, they're there together. They're all related somehow. And I'm thinking, man. That must be an interesting Thanksgiving dinner table for all those folks. Yeah. Christmas must be real weird for them sometimes. Christmas, exactly. Christmas must be real weird. Let's go to Disney. I'm, let's go to Disney World and and let's get into a brawl. And I'm going to hit you, and you're going to spit in my face. And I tell you, don't they realize that Disney World once again it's supposed to be the happiest place in the world? Um, I don't have enough time to open up the phone lines on this, but I, I in Milwaukee. We are now on a trial basis going to be allowing these electric scooters to come in. And I I guess I, I understand where there might be an appeal to these. I, I'm just offering a cautionary tale. Chicago is about three weeks ahead of us. They have they're they've a, they've got these pilot programs to allow these electric scooters like the bird scooters and the other scooters. And the, the good news is they're getting a, a bunch of riders. They have about 2,500 scooters in the area, and their deal is it's it's limited to, like, downtown and the Loop and the, the lakefront. They've got 2,500 scooters, and they say the first week alone there were 60,000 rides, so people were using them. The problem is that a lot of people were are misusing them. People are riding on sidewalks. People are riding down the streets where they're prohibited. People are riding them against street traffic. Some users are riding two on a scooter. Young children have been observed riding these scooters, even though you're supposed to be at least 18 before you can use them. 
They had a situation where a bicyclist was badly injured when a scooter rider crashed into him. And they're saying the problem is the the rules aren't being enforced. So essentially, you know, they've got all these rules and these regulations that the city drew up and nobody is following them. And they say, I mean, here's the problem. This is what's happening in other cities as well. And now they're seeing in Chicago, it's like the Wild West. Uh, Matter of fact, Nashville, which is doing a pilot project as well, the mayor he says, look, I, I want to eliminate this program because, you know, we've had a scooter-related traffic death. We've had all sorts of, of other problems. So it, it's one of these, you know, it's, it's one of these deals where, in theory, and this is the concern I was raising yesterday, and somebody was texting me saying, oh, you're always so negative. I, look, I'm, I'm not. I, I understand the appeal of these things, particularly the idea that you rent one of these scooters and you go up and down the lakefront. I think that, not for me, but I think that for some people that might be fun. But the devil is in the details. And what you're starting to see in real-world applications is people aren't following the rules. People are riding where they're not supposed to. Uh, people are abandoning them, abandoning these things where they're not supposed to. You're finding them in traffic. You're finding them, again, in all sorts of places they're not supposed to be. And you're having people that are getting hurt doing this. So if you're going to have rules, you have to figure out how are you going to enforce those rules. And I don't know that anybody has a good answer for that yet. So you heard it here first. I hope these scooters work because actually they look like, again, for some people, it might be a lot of fun. But cities that are doing this are having lots of problems with it. And I, I hope Milwaukee's different. I'm just skeptical. All right, when we come back, we're going to find out what John and Melissa have on their minds on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around.